This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We hear of so many entrepreneurs these days that have a great idea, they have a level of success, and then they sell it off to another company. But that trend is one that really only covers the last decade or two. If you go back a little bit in time, entrepreneurs like Sam Walton of Walmart or Walt Disney had great ideas. They stayed with it for decades, seeing those companies turn iconic. Princeton University faculty member Derek Lido writes about those successes in his new book, Built on Bedrock. Derek is also a former CEO of the New York Stock Exchange, and he joins us here in studio to talk about his book. Nice meeting you. Thank you for making the drive down from Princeton today. Dan, it's a real pleasure to be here. It, it is amazing. I'll start in the present before we get in, into the his, history for a second. But it does seem like everyone is trying to be an entrepreneur these days, and it's almost like entrepreneurship has become a little bit like house flipping. You have that success, and then you sell it off, and then you go on to the next project. Well, that, that, that is a fantasy that many people have. Right. Um, but it does not describe how most of the wealth created by startups actually happens even today in, in our country. And th- this is a false myth okay. uh, that comes out of, of us fixating on c- companies like Spotify, which uh, just uh, went public and uh, creates billionaires. Yeah. And – the, the, this is a handful of companies. In the United States every year, there's 600,000 new incorporations, 600,000. Mm. And every year, more or less for the last 20 years, venture capital has invested in 1,400 new companies a year. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking 1,400 small out of 600,000. And so if, if, if we want to be a society that relies on our entrepreneurs for our new jobs, and that's where all of them come from, a significant fraction of our innovation and a significant fraction of all our growth in GDP, then we have to understand how entrepreneurs really create the wealth, yeah. which is the law, uh, law of large numbers – Look for bedrock entrepreneurs, which is really the basis of this book. And you look at a at a variety of individuals who had unbelievably phenomenal careers. But what was it that really got you thinking of of linking the entrepreneurs of today to the people like Sam Walton and Walt Disney and and, and Ray Kroc? You talk about right. you know, of McDonald's in the book because they're accessible role models. The way people internalize and and uh, decide on what to do are based upon what they see others have done that have worked or not worked. Right. And, and the, the, this causes the visceral reactions for those things to be lodged in your brain. Oh, my God, I can do this. Or, right. oh, my God, I'm never going to do that. And so that's why I wanted to illustrate the facts about entrepreneurship today using um, entrepreneurs – that we may have heard about, but we really don't understand or don't know what truly made them successful uh, relative to those that failed. You just uh, came back from Arkansas, and you were out there for a celebration of what would have been the 100th birthday of Sam Walton. Uh, And and obviously, Walmart has become this uh, iconic 
company here in this country and continues to be, even in this day, making the changes that it is to to compete with companies like Amazon. What did you find out about Mr. Walton that made him the success that he was? Right. So I I was very fortunate that uh, the Walmart and the Walton family allowed me to have exclusive access to their archives, to Sam Walton's papers going way back. So I could literally have in my hands the the um, the tally sheet of the day or the week that he looked at while he wrote his <laughs> note about this is what we need to do next. Yeah. Um, and and that gives you a great deal of insight in terms of how he thought and and also what allowed him to grow a nearly bankrupt small-town variety sh- franchised variety shop into yeah. the largest corporation the world has ever known. Uh, on a global scale, it's the largest revenue producer in the world. But at, at some point, doesn't he have to come to the expectation of, you know, we start out at one level and there is the opportunity or there is the want to be able to expand it as yeah. much as, as, as Walmart has expanded. Well, how did that occur and, and, and when in his life? It was very slow and steady. So the first Walmart yeah. store was not opened until 17 years after he started in business. Yeah. So for 17 years, he perfected his techniques, particularly his mar- uh, merchandising techniques. And, and this was done on a relentless weekly basis. So every week... Uh, after he opened his second store, he'd get together on Saturday morning with his store managers and say, what are we going to do better next week? <laughs> what, what didn't work out the way we expected last week? And relentlessly, week after week, for, for year on year, he, he would figure out how to improve things. And so his improvement path was the fastest that there's ever been. And, um, but it was 17 years later when he decided no longer to just do franchises, uh, to be a franchise owner. And he opened up his first Walmart. His first Walmart was not an instant success. The second Walmart, which has a legendary story about how it was opened, was the runaway success that ultimately – um, you know, led to the company that we know today. So what was it that 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 happened between the first and second store opening that that changed the dynamic within the company so that that second store just it kind of, you know, took it and run? Well, in some ways, the second store, he amped up uh, the cost savings, the, the everyday low price. It wasn't yet a concept that he uh, described so simply, but he offered just incredible uh, prices on staples like toilet paper and toothpaste. Yeah. Okay. And um, and he he (laughs) it was the summertime and he bought every fresh a watermelon within a day's drive <laughs> and and basically piled them up and you could get them for 10 cents. And the the locals um, couldn't resist the deals like that. They never saw something like that before. So they flocked to the store and uh, in, in unprecedented numbers, uh, in spite of the fact it was such a hot day, the watermelons started 
bursting open because they were outside. And to attract families, he had uh, arranged for donkey rides to be offered in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. But the guy that was uh, doing the donkey rides uh, was so busy, he couldn't clean up all the donkey poop. Yeah. And so the donkey poop and the watermelon juice mixed together and flowed all over inside the store. And so everything had this acrid uh, smell. Oh, I, I bet it did. Yeah. But in, 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 in rural Arkansas at that point in time, that was considered homey, man. Yeah. Uh, Walt Disney is another person you talk about in, in this book. Mm-hmm. And obviously everybody knows the, the path uh, of Disney, especially the, the last 30 years or so. Uh, and they've probably seen some of the stories about Walt Disney. But what was it about about him that, that allowed Disney as an idea, as an entity, to, to be able to soar the way that it did? Yeah, well, for, first off, um, Walt Disney went bankrupt yeah. on his first attempt in Kansas City. And he did it... Uh, using what today we would call more the Silicon Valley model of entrepreneurship, where he he raised a lot of money from Kansas City elite uh, to create a studio, an yeah. animation studio in Kansas City. But um, his skills still, he was a young kid, uh, weren't good enough to make it in the big time. Right. And, um, and he went bankrupt. And he was more or less run out of town and went to live with his uncle in, in L.A. But he still had this wanderlust. And, but being run out of Kansas City really made him aware of the fact that he could no longer rely on investors if he was going to uh, nurture his own talent. Right. And so he enlisted the help of his brother, who had worked in banks, to be the financial guy. And they started relentlessly on tiny little bits of money making animated shorts that finally sold. And um, his first uh, big hit was um, uh, Rabbit, um, not Oscar, but um, it's just slipping me right now. But but he, he... that uh, whole idea was stolen from him yeah. by his distributor, and in reaction to that, he created Mickey Mouse. And Mickey Mouse uh, was not an instant hit. He yeah. couldn't sell the first two uh, shows, and he decided to risk every piece, uh, every dollar he had that he could borrow uh, to put sound to it. And he was the first person to put sound to an animated short. And l- literally, it was down to the last second where uh, one movie theater person decided to take a, a risk on showing this short of his and paid him, you know, 500 bucks. As you have gone through and, and learned more about all these different individuals, have you been able to find common themes about how they have gone about achieving their successes? I mean, mindset, drive, whatever it might be. Are there are there commonalities amongst them? Well, in the book Building on Bedrock, it's organized uh, according to the who, what, when, where, and how yeah. of entrepreneurship. So ultimately, we're, I'm trying to help everybody extract from these stories um, who, who becomes entrepreneurs, why they do it, uh, what they do, 
the things that made them successful, how much they needed to start, and uh, where they did it, and when they did it in their lives. And ultimately, so that it's very clear to each person that reads the book on whether entrepreneurship is a good thing for them. So uh, 60% of the working population aspires to be an entrepreneur today. Yeah. 50% are actually going to try. So having a fix on how entrepreneurship really works for most people is extremely important because you're likely to try. And if you don't try, somebody in your household or somebody you care about is going to try. And if you want to be in a position to to help them be successful, you better understand how this all works. And and it also has the potential of becoming a missed opportunity for the person as well. A missed opportunity. And, And here's the rub of what's happening today. So today, entrepreneurship is in actually a steady decline yeah. as measured by the number of new companies that are being started. I, I quoted 600,000 uh, new companies started last year approximately. Well, it used to be 800,000. So it's from, down from 800,000 to 600,000. The failure rate is very high, yeah. higher than it ever is. Why? Because we're basically sending a message that the Silicon Valley model of entrepreneurship, which I call high risk, which is an important model for these 1,400 companies a year, uh, are what we're saying all entrepreneurs should follow. Now, what this does is it scares off a lot of people that uh, from being entrepreneurs that have huge things that they can contribute uh-huh. to making our lives and our society better. And they, because they don't think they're a coding savant and they like to get eight hours of sleep a night, that they can't, they're, they're no longer, uh, you know, go, going to be able to be successful. And so they don't try. And then there are all these other people who have, you know, good talents, but we say, go high risk. Yeah. Well, The failure rate for high risk, we're talking uh, actual um, numbers of more like one in 500. Whereas if you go bedrock Uh with the classic bedrock principles of entrepreneurship, it's one in three. So we're leading a lot of lambs to slaughter here. And the impact on the economy ends up being a significant loss of opportunity and and loss of of potentially bringing forth great ideas, which could be be impacting society. Exactly. This is a big issue. So um, it's it's really incumbent on all of us, and particularly institutions like Wharton and uh, those that uh, are educating uh, our next generation of entrepreneurs to let them know what the choices are and, and what are the pros and cons of each direction that they could choose. Uh, we're talking with Derek Lito, who is the uh, author uh, of the uh, new book that we're uh, discussing here today. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So th- the the idea of bedrock and, and these principles, what are the most common things that, that probably entrepreneurs should consider 
to really try and follow the, these bedrock principles. Right. So for, first is um, the risk, which we say, you know, there's this myth that uh, our entrepreneurs are risk tolerant. Uh, that's the facts do not show that whatsoever. Yeah. And uh, there are ways that entrepreneurs have classically operated to minimize their risks. Yeah. Uh, and most entrepreneurs want to do that because they can't afford to wipe out their bank accounts sure. and, and, you know, let their wives, you know, and kids starve to death yeah. or anything like that. So they manage their businesses to, uh, to uh, minimize risk by achieving profitability mm -hmm. as early as possible. And they reinvest profits and not strangers' money right. <laughs> into their business. They can take loans, but they do it judici judiciously. And as uh, Sam Walton demonstrated, okay, 17 years of runway before he started yeah. <laughs> Walmart. But when he started Walmart, there was no stopping him. What about the story of Ray Kroc? Uh, because I, a lot of people will remember a couple of years ago uh, the movie The Founder, yeah. which uh, looked at his story and how McDonald's really really came into being. Yeah. So Ray Kroc is really interesting. I do profile him in the book because he started so late. Yeah. So so there's this myth that entrepreneurship is you know for the young and where. The facts show that entrepreneurship is really something that um, you have the highest uh, chances of success for when you start when you're in your 40s or late 30s. Or Ray Kroc started 52. Yeah. And uh, by the time he more or less retired in his uh, late 70s, uh, McDonald's franchises were a huge world thing. So in a short period of time, uh, because he was somebody who knew what he was looking for. He was looking for that opportunity. Yeah. And he found it and he pounced on it. And so 52-year-olds, absolutely, you can be you know, world-class bedrock entrepreneurs if you want. Is that, is that a misconception even in today's world of entrepreneurship that, that to be a successful entrepreneur, you probably should be in your 20s or 30s? And because ideas come to people yeah. at, at all points of their life. I, I mean, I, I yeah. sit here at age 51, and who knows, something could pop in my head in the next year to, to bring forward a, a great idea and, and, and move it along. Right. So th there is this myth that entrepreneurship is really for the young. Uh, you, you know, you need to drink uh, Red Bull constantly <laughs> and not sleep. Uh, but, but the facts don't support that. Right. But but I do need to point out this other thing that uh, we discuss in the book, and this is this myth about the idea. Okay, so the idea is not the starting point for successful enterprises. Right. So Sam Walton, he had he bought a bankrupt franchise variety store. There wasn't yeah. anything. He 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 ran his business by the manual <laughs> that they gave him. Yeah. And franchises today still create, you know, many very successful uh entrepreneurs. But I also tell the story of William Shockley in in the book. So William Shockley, one of the great um uh, scientists of the 20th century was a co-inventor of the transistor. Mm -hmm. The one, the transistor, you know, is is the founding idea 
that led to personal computers and the internet and our smartphone and everything. So this was important. It made the New York Times. Everybody realized it was going to change the world. And he wanted it to be his legacy. He had no problem raising literally a blank check from a super wealthy business person. Gave him a blank check. Okay. (laughs) Create your business. He hired the nine smartest people that he knew in the country. And he moved them uh, because he could choose, it was his company, to be next to his mom. Right. His mom happened to live in Palo Alto, California. So Silicon Valley is where it is today because of William Shockley's mother. (laughs) (laughs) Great piece of history. Yeah, a little known fact there. So uh, he moves everybody out there. And the world's waiting with bated breath to buy Shockley transistors. Nothing happens. Not a single device is produced. He is screaming at his these smart people. He's going behind their backs. He takes all the credit for their ideas, but he changes his mind on a weekly basis. It's chaos. His leadership is is non-existent. And the people, they they flee. And they create Intel and they create Kleiner Perkins and all these legendary companies of Silicon Valley uh, were all, you know, um, refugees from William Shockley. So the greatest idea of the 20th century in the hands of somebody who doesn't have the basic skills, which I go over in in, uh, Building on Bedrock, can't take that idea and make any money out of it. We are uh, joined here in studio by Derek Lido of Princeton University, his book, Built on Bedrock. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. It seems like, though, and we've talked about exposing these myths, but it seems like there's probably more myths that get exposed than probably a lot of people really believe that that are out there, correct? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, th- th- this entrepreneurship, you know, Ethos is just filled with myths that are leading people to make poor decisions yeah. about what to do next. And, and that's why I felt compelled to write the book. How do you think that, that somebody like Sam Walton would react to his company now in this age – uh, in this digital space, and obviously the the back and forth that they have going on right now with Amazon, how would his principles of entrepreneurship play into the potential successes of Walmart today? Yeah. So um, Sam Walton liked to describe himself as very frugal. Um, but the truth of the matter is that when he felt a new technology could help his store managers do a better job. Right. He, he'd write big checks. Right. <laughs> so he was uh, not the first, but in sort of the first wave of running his stores with the help of computers. Mm-hmm. He put in satellite communication, instant satellite dedicated links with all his stores almost at the first. Wow. So he read constantly – about new ideas, and he would experiment with them, or he'd go. He was he was relentless about going to his competitors' stores and seeing what they were doing, and uh, and copying, yeah. Yeah. stealing their ideas. He was he was proud that he did that, yeah. and so he was up on what was working, where and how that was happening, and he would you know, come back in the next Saturday morning meeting, say, we got to do this, right. let's mobilize. So he would have mobilized for the internet because 
he would have been right on top of the potential. One of the other people that you talk about in the book is Estee Lauder. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, when you think about the, 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 the amazing company that that has become, uh, it, it does make you wonder about how the genesis of it really got started and, and, and where the, the kind of the tipping point was. Yeah. So her genesis was, is really interesting. Uh, she was raised in, um, uh, home with you know just enough, so very um, uh, probably no savings whatsoever. Yeah, and she was compelled to get a job, and she helped her her aunt who had a uh, something like a dress shop. Yeah, and she, she liked selling, mm-hmm. and she liked cosmetics, and. So when she graduated high school, that's how she made a living, is selling cosmetics that another uncle of hers uh, made out of his little shop, along with uh, rat poison and uh, (laughs) eczema ointment. (laughs) That's a nice combination of things to produce. Isn't it? it? So she takes his his creams that are coming out of his vats when they're not producing rat poison, and uh, she's selling them to her her friends and the like, and, and perfecting her sales techniques. And again, it wasn't like an overnight success, let me, you know, uh, take a huge risk and start a big company. Yeah. She she learned how to sell cosmetics at a, a, a greater and greater scale before she ultimately borrowed money to start uh, Estee Lauder. And at the same time, her, her name was uh, – Josephine Metzner, yeah, and and her husband was Lauter with a T, okay, uh, and she uh, romanticized it into Estee Lauder, of course, yeah, because yeah. it's that's that's the way to market it right. to have a little bit more, you know, extra than than just the norm. Uh, in terms of the book, and obviously telling all these different stories and and the principles you bring forward. What is it you hope that that will be the kind of the signature takeaway for people that are reading the book? Um, I want them to understand uh, how they feel personally about entrepreneurship, whether it's something for them that they should consider or reconsider or for their family or someone that they love. But I also hope that it changes the conversation in in business schools and uh, even among policymakers about what sorts of entrepreneurship we're trying to encourage. Because ultimately, if we encourage too much high risk, we're just going to encourage more and more failure. And it's bedrock entrepreneurship that we need to keep our uh, country uh, competitive in many, many different areas and not just in social media. Which is interesting because it's almost like we have two kind of different paths of entrepreneurship. We have the people that that go to a business school like Wharton who want to follow that entrepreneurship path and are going out and they may have a variety of mentors that are are helping them along with the process. But then you also have so many average citizens that want to follow that path as well and maybe don't necessarily have the same type of support resources that that somebody in a, in a college setting might. Yeah. But in my book, Building on Bedrock, I talk about how they can find mentors yeah. to help them along their path. There's, there's nothing special 
Uh, an entrepreneur, even a super successful entrepreneur, is no smarter, no wealthier, yeah. uh, no stronger than the average. Right. Uh, there is no trait literally that knocks you out of the box about being a successful entrepreneur. You you may have to consider how you're going to mitigate some issue you have, right. but then everybody needs to do that anyway. So um, entrepreneurship is a real viable path for the vast majority of, of people out there. And if if more people choose the bedrock way, uh, our society, our, our, our GDP will grow faster, we'll yeah. create more jobs, and more innovation will be introduced. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in today. Dan, a real pleasure. Thank you. Derek Lito, the book is Built on Bedrock. Uh, it is available in bookstores and is available online uh, for purchase. Building on Bedrock, my apologies, uh, that you can pick up uh, now and, uh, and uh, dive into it. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.